Welcome to Inside Medicine, a podcast for the intellectually curious and especially for those who want to get close to the truth in science and medicine. We have conversations with leading scientists, physicians, and innovators in the spirit of educating and inspiring you to take actions today that will benefit your long-term health. The future of medicine is here, and our goal is to bring it to you now. We hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Jordan Schlain, founder of Private Medical, and today I'm pleased to introduce part four of four in our series on neuroscience. We'll speak to doctors who are at the forefront of understanding the brain, the science behind cognition, injury states, mental health, and mindfulness. In this episode, we explore habit change with Dr. Judson Brewer, professor at the Schools of Public Health and Medicine at Brown University and author of the best-selling book, Unwinding Anxiety. He is also the creator of the step-by-step program for the app of the same name. As an expert in mindfulness training for addiction, he discusses how uncertainty relates to anxiety, fear as a biological survival mechanism, and how this mechanism is exploited by modern day distractions, making it even harder to pay attention. For today's conversation, we're joined by my co-host, Silicon Valley internist, Dr. Justin Lotfi. Glad to be here. Judson Brewer, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I think just to get us started and to get our audience kind of familiar with your work and who you are, maybe we could go back to, you know, you were 10, you were seven years old. Did you, did you know you wanted to be a psychiatrist or how did you, how did your path wind up from being a seven-year-old to being a psychiatrist at Brown? Well, I won't go through all the, the boring details, but I, I remember as a kid reading uh, <laughs> Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead and wanted to be an architect. <laughs> and then I went to college and I thought I wanted to be an engineer. And then I realized how much math was involved. And so that got weeded out. And then, uh, but I was fascinated. I remember taking this course in chemistry uh, and learning terms like putrescine and cadaverdine. And I was like, oh my God. This is why cadavers stink. That's so cool. And so I ended up, yeah, I ended up majoring in chemistry and thought I was going to be a chemist and then looked to see how many chemists kind of pigeonhole themselves into studying things that may or may not in our lifetimes be helpful for the world. I was like, eh. And my girlfriend at the time was like, hey, you could do an MD PhD program where you can, you know, you love doing research. You could do that. And you could also learn to make sure your research is somewhat clinically relevant. I was like, that sounds like a good idea. And she's like, oh, and it can also get, you know, you get paid for it. And I was like, I'm in. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I went and did an MD PhD program and also, um, <laughs> my girlfriend and I broke up right before, uh, medical school. And so I was going, you know, I was like a little stressed out starting medical school, just, you know, lost my best friend. And so I started meditating my first day of medical school. I was like, wow, I have no idea how my mind works. And I I had no idea how little I know about my mind. And so started meditating during boring medical school lectures and, you know, thinking, well, at least, you know, doing something useful here. And so I was thinking, well, I'll do psychiatry as my first rotation, just so I can remember how to interview patients, because I'm not going to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> long story short, here I am. And part of it was that what I'd been learning in my meditation practice, and I've been practicing as part of this Theravada Buddhist practice where they, you know, they're very interested in the science of the mind. My patients, especially the ones with addictions, we're like speaking the same language as the Buddha. I was like, wow, this is weird. You know, they're they're talking about cravings and holding on to stuff and obviously suffering. 
you know, the, the medications that we have in psychiatry, you know, we don't have a lot of great medications. You know, even if you look at SSRIs, there was a pragmatic study done in the UK recently <laughs> suggesting that, that SSRIs are no better than placebo. And I, I should say, as a prescribing psychiatrist, it's not like I don't use SSRIs. For some people, uh, they're, they're life-saving and life-changing. And the, those large effects in small number of people are probably driving some of these population effects we were seeing earlier in some of these clinical studies. So here as a psychiatrist, you know, I, I started practicing, I trained as an addiction psychiatrist and wanted to see how I could help my patients and was really excited and then started to realize how hard it is to change an addiction. And so was really struggling with the tools that I'd learned, mostly willpower-based tools. Uh, but these tools that I'd learned in medical school and residency for habit change, whether it was, you know, quitting cocaine or heroin or quitting smoking or even overeating. Wow, what a, what a fantastic story. I'm curious, going back to, if you don't mind sharing, when you said you found meditation, you know, you had a, a lot of uh, changes in your life. H how did that come up? Because I think a lot of us don't find meditation and we we kind of brute force it you know just struggle with willpower as you said and burnout or uh you pick up some other avoidant you know negative bad habit well i i'm smiling because <laughs> so i got i got lucky you know somehow this john kabat-zinn book landed in my lap at the beginning of medical school there are these things called cassette tapes uh, that were in the book <laughs> and i listened to them on a cassette player um, so some of folks might not know what those are, but you know, you can, you can ask chat GPT and it'll tell you, maybe it'll even describe it to you in, in the language of Shakespeare. Uh, so, <laughs> so I started meditating at the beginning of medical school and I'm also smiling because I will powered my way through what I thought was meditation for literally 10 years. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, you know, willpower seems to work, you know, get into medical school and, you know, as an example, about three years in, I went on my first silent seven day meditation retreat. And by day three, I was crying uncontrollably on the shoulder of the meditation retreat manager because the instruction was to pay attention to your breath. You know, when your mind wanders, bring it back. Seems simple enough. Yet, you know, I couldn't willpower my way into into paying attention to my breath. So I thought I was like, I can't do this. There's something wrong with me. And the irony is, well, for better or for worse, it took me seven more years <laughs> to figure out that I was still doing that. But that's not what mindfulness and meditation are all about. You know, you can't just take these Western concepts and you're like, oh, pay attention to your breath and then you're going to kill it. <laughs> but it actually helped me see, you know, after a while what I was doing wrong and it actually truly informed not only how I approached meditation, but how I approached studying meditation and developing digital therapeutics. It was, it was, you know, all that pain led to hopefully some gain for other people, <laughs> if not for me. Fascinating. And so, yeah, so I was going to go back to that first moment, like when you got to medical school and you said, I'm just going to meditate. Uh, how do you, how do you come to that? Like of all the things in the universe to do, like I'm going to have a beer, I'm going to go, like I'm going to meditate. W where did that come from? Was, was that like a book you read or? So that John Kabat-Zinn book came out of a need. You know, my pain point was that I was I was suffering. I was stressed out. You know, uh, uh, you know, my 
after my breakup, my my former girlfriend wasn't wasn't too pleased about you know, the outcome. So like, you know, we weren't talking, even though we were both in medical school together. You know? So it's like I was pretty stressed out. And so I was looking for some stress relief. And so this, you know, this full catastrophe living book is the name of, of the book that I, I started reading. I uh, was talking about, you know, wow. You know, you can actually start to alleviate some of this stress by paying attention to your mind. The irony is, you know, I love this saying, the obstacle becomes the way, you know, that's, I think, attributed to Marcus Aurelius. Um, I love what you said about suffering. It's so universal. I, I think about it in the context of my own life. I see it in my patients, but I do struggle with communicating it without becoming preachy with patients. And I'm curious, you know, I want to say, oh, I I read stoicism and, you know, I meditate and uh, you should too, because I see you're suffering. That doesn't come off so well. So um, I'm curious, how do you translate your experience and this knowledge you have to to help your patients, addiction or otherwise? I think of it more as, you know, if you live it, you know, what is it the prophet's not welcome in his or her own town? And so, or the, the, uh, the way I've heard it in Buddhism is, you know, like, people hate me when I'm a Buddhist, but they love me when I'm a Buddha. Mm. And so, oh, that's great. Yeah. If we can, if we can live it, people will be like, man, what are you smoking? I want to, I want a token of that, you know? Um, and as to be clear, as an addiction psychiatrist, I do not use illegal substances. So, but, you know, I've learned to kind of understand how my mind works and that's been really helpful for me. And they're like, oh, tell me more, you know? So if I come across as like this stressed out, you know, freak of a psychiatrist, and maybe I do, but if I, if I come across as like, Hey, you know, he kind of understands the mind a little bit, or he, he, you know, if I can relate to my patients, if I can understand where they're coming from, they're going to, they're going to buy into that and be like, Oh, you know, you understand life a little bit. And, and I can, and how'd you do that? And I'm like, well, I didn't read a book. You know, this isn't knowledge. Uh, this comes from experience and the experience comes from seeing how the mind works over and over and over. And I started by looking at my own mind and I can say, yeah, my mind was a mess. I wrote an entire book called The Craving Mind, like highlighting all the uh, all the addictions that I noted about my own experience as I was going through learning how these processes work for addiction psychiatry. And you you talked about anxiety as a habit. Could Could you unpack that a little bit? Because I think we all have habits that we know are some are good, some are bad. But, but to have anxiety, which is like kind of part of our core perception and, and interaction with the, the world and ourselves, I guess, how is that a habit? I was struggling to help my patients with anxiety. You know, one out of five just being helped with medication, playing the medication lottery, didn't know what to do. And so at the time, you know, I'd been, my lab has been, had been studying habit change for years. And so we developed this program, uh, this app called Craving to Quit, and we were finding that that training was helping people. We were getting five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. Like this was our first pilot study of the in-person training. And then we developed it into an app and we're like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. Five times that's, you know, we could get the mechanism. And then we started, and then our, our folks that were using, it were saying, Hey, I'm actually using this to cut down on stress and emotional and overeating. And we're like, oh, so we make this eat right now program. And people in that digital therapeutic were saying, Hey, you know, they're mapping out these eating habit loops and they were, they were saying to me, Hey, you know, anxiety is driving me to do a lot of stress eating. Can you create a program for anxiety and truth? Here's the truth. I was like, "Eh, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I prescribe medications for anxiety, you know, and then it put a bug in my ear and I started thinking, well, I'm not doing a great job, you know, in these medications, I wish they were better. 
So I started going back and looking at the literature. And back, this is, I love this coincidence. So back in the mid 80s, when Prozac came out, right? And this is, you know, the Stones were singing about uh, Mother's Little Helper, you know, that, so as everybody's addicted to benzos uh, <laughs> and for anxiety. And then Prozac comes out and they're like, oh, you know, this, at first it, they were just using it for depression, but then like, hey, let's try this for anxiety. And at that same time, this psychologist, uh, Thomas Borkovic suggested, hey, you know, anxiety can be driven through negative reinforcement like any other habit. And everybody totally ignored that, you know, because they're like, hey, Prozac, you know, you can just take a pill. <laughs> and boy, if there if there was a pill for anxiety that's not a benzodiazepine, I would be, you know, it would be a blockbuster drug. Right. So th it, this got largely ignored. I never learned it in medical school. Or I slept through the through that lecture, I was paying too much attention to my breath or something, you know, and I didn't learn it in residency. And yet here I was suffering, trying to help my own patients. And this bug in my ear says, go back and look at the literature. And when I read this thing that Borkovet talked about, I was like, oh, well, we're applying reinforcement learning strategies to helping people change other habits. Could we actually apply it to this habit? And so that's that was where the idea for developing our unwinding anxiety app came to fruition. And then, of course, as a as a clinician, I wanted to see if it worked. And as a neuroscientist and a and a clinical trials uh, person, I wanted to actually test it. Long story short, here we were with this this idea that was put into my ear by somebody saying, "Hey, I'm struggling with anxiety. Can you help me?" me struggling to help them and then saying, hey, you know, let's let's develop this app and test it and see if it actually works. Now, a lot more work needs to be done, but, you know, three clinical trials is a good is a good starting point, you know, especially when we're seeing remission rates of 64 percent. That's really so, good. So, so I have a question that's just like it's a fundamental question about like all the things you're talking about. I think it is, which is what is anxiety? And I know that when we sat down there and we were in Half Moon Bay, we talked about, you know, too much anxiety, you can't get anything done. No anxiety, you can't get anything done. And then some form of anxiety is like productive, but no, no, that's not true. That's right. The... No, we talked about the, why that wasn't true. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, but, just to but, be but clear I want you that... to like explain that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't want anybody to get that idea. And the idea here is what is true is that the studies show, and there's a fair amount of research on this showing that there's an inverse relationship between anxiety and performance. So I think there's this, this idea that people hold on to that they hold anxiety as a badge of honor, like, yes, I'm a little bit anxious. This is what's helping me get stuff done. This is the correlation equals causation fallacy, right? Where because somebody's anxious, true, and they are getting something done, true, does not mean that when they're anxious, because they're anxious, they're getting something done. That's the causality fallacy. So what is true is that if people are anxious a lot and they get something done, they're likely to have both of those happen at the same time. Why? Because they're anxious all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you can't disentangle the correlation. But what is what has been shown is that the more anxious people get, the worse they do. And that's that's pretty clear. And if anybody looks at their own life <laughs> right. and asks, hey, Right. When am I most productive? When am I? When do I have the best ideas in the world? It's not when they're anxious, you know. And I think of so. And then you can even ask, well, what's the opposite of anxiety? Slow, you know. Chicken Mahai's description of this effortless, selfless, totally energized, totally immersed in our experience state. That's when people 
uniformly report they're at their best, whether it's an Olympic athlete or a musician or somebody writing something or just somebody in the flow of doing their clinical practice, right? It's, you know, it's like, boom, 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 boom. Where's the anxiety? It's not there. So does that mean that anxiety is, I mean, just to use a, another metaphor, that anxiety is the resistance in the flow circuit? Is that a way to think about it or no? So if we look at the standard dictionary definitions of anxiety, it's, you know, basically a feeling of nervousness or unease about uh, in, un, something something uncertain with an uncertain outcome, right? Doesn't so I think you have an uncertain outcome, though. I mean, yes. Isn't life an uncertain outcome? So what differentiates life from anxiety? It's that feeling of nervousness or unease that comes with it. So you can think of us being in our in our anxious zone or even at worst, our panic zone. And that's, you know, our brains hate uncertainty. Uncertainty is all about, you know, there's something different. Our brains have to, they have to get alerted to that to see if there's danger there. But the problem is you can't alert yourself to the future because it's not, it hasn't happened yet. So this comes from, it likely comes from uh, these fear mechanisms that alert us to, hey, that's different. I need to check to see if that's dangerous. You know, it's like if we hear some strange noise in our house at night, it's going to be hard to just roll over and be like, eh. Burglar, whatever. I don't care. It's you know, <laughs> probably not. You know, we have to go and check it out or do something. You know, uh, and our alerting mechanism is saying, "Dude, you can't just ignore that." You know, so we have to. It's set up for present moment uh, exploration. And you know, once that uncertainty goes away, one way or the other, then you can you your arousal goes down. You can go back to sleep. So this is really about um, fear of the future. I think of it that way. And so fear is a helpful survival mechanism. Planning for the future is a helpful survival mechanism. When you mush the two together, fear of the future, not so helpful. I actually, yeah, this is this is so rich. I, I was I emailed the patient this morning uh, about this health anxiety and you know uh, being okay with uncertainty. Um, and I, I wrote uncertainty, and I actually sent him your TED talk, and I mentioned uh, unwinding anxiety app. So this is perfect. Um, and I, I I think it was in your TED talk, if I remember correctly, you do, I think you touch on, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the more primitive, um, you know, trigger behavior reward. And then we, you know, have this prefrontal cortex and now it's kind of, um, uh, running, am I, I suppose that's kind of running amok somewhat in, in today's society. Um, so it, do you, I guess my question is, is it that technology and all the stimulus is, um, causing increased anxiety or, or do I have that backwards? And it's more that you have more mechanisms to escape addressing your fundamental thought processes. Yeah. It's a really good question. I think both might be true. So if we think of anxiety as a habit loop, the feeling of anxiety, so that feeling of nervousness or unease can actually trigger the mental behavior of worrying. And that worrying has makes us feel like we're in control or at least that we're doing something so that that the illusion of control does not equal control so that in, that is self-perpetuating and that's where we can get in worry habit loops and that's what i see most commonly clinically and we can also so all of the uncertainty in the world can get driven uh, we can it can drive us to move to avoidance or escape mechanisms and that you know, we have, you know, our, our Cornell West called our phones our weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> and I love that 
Because the idea is if we're feeling anxious, we can just go and distract ourselves on our phones. So we can think, oh, well, if it's if it's uncertainty and there's a lack of information about something, I can just go on the internet and figure it out. And so, you know, one, there's a huge amount of information on the internet. But the other thing that, that the internet has is now is mo- both misinformation and deliberate disinformation. Hmm. So, you know, people have trouble deciphering what is actually useful information versus not. And also getting information overload, there's a reason it's called that, is not helpful. And so when you add all those variables into the mix, there's a huge amount of information. We got to sort through it all. Even if we have some engine to help us sort through it all, we don't know what's accurate or true. And so that can actually heighten our uncertainty uh, and and lead to this, you know, the analysis paralysis or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call that. So, you know, you think, oh, if I just get information, then I can reduce that uncertainty. Like you all pointed out, future by definition is uncertain, you know, and so there are many things that we just so we can't actually rely on trying to reduce that uncertainty. We ha- we've got to focus on different ways to approach the problem, which is how can we become OK with uncertainty and shift from our panic zone into our growth zone where we see as uncertainty as our friend? OK, so I'm anxious and uh, or I think I'm anxious or I know someone who's anxious and that seems to be causing like their existence to like not be optimal, according to them or others around them. But what what are the first places to intervene and, and, and how do you how do you bring it up to get somebody even aware of it that may not be aware of it? And so often people like you're pointing out, people aren't aware that they're anxious. And so if somebody isn't aware, but it's causing them some type of, uh, let's say, suboptimal living. I can any you know, we can we can gently bring it up by asking curious questions like, oh, you know. How's your life going? And, you know, are there things that are that are making your life better or worse or, and, you know, get a sense for their their life? And then often the the idea about, well, I worry about this. And, you know, so I love the methodology around motivational interviewing where, you know, somebody says, oh, I worry. And say, well, why don't you worry more? You know, it's kind of like, oh, I smoke cigarettes. Why don't you smoke more cigarettes? And it helps people really touch into their direct experience to see how something isn't actually serving them that much. So that's actually one of the, the first place actually start is to help somebody map out any of these habit loops. And typically they're coming to me because it, there's enough of a pain point that they're, you know, they're in, they're suffering enough where they're like, oh, doc, there's something wrong. And so they're open. If somebody's not even aware of it yet, then I've got to help them uh, identify those pain points without forcing, you know, you can't force somebody to see things. They have to see them themselves. And so I can I can be curious myself and that curiosity, you know, I can spread that as a useful social contagion. <laughs> be like, oh, well, where is your life not not optimal? Those types of things. Once we can identify those habit loops, and it's, you know, it's that's generally the most straightforward part. Then we can ask that that question around basically like, what are you getting from this? You know, and so when somebody worries, a lot of people are really identified with worrying, you know, they're like, oh, I worry. And that's what helps me get stuff done. If sometimes it's helpful to talk about the correlation versus causation, and other times it's really just helpful to have them go out in their lives and explore it and say, okay, you know, go home and worry and, and 
and really pay attention to the results of that because that's how reinforcement learning works. You know, if something's rewarding, we're going to keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we're going to stop. And people come back and mostly they're like, man, this doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like having my patients pay attention when they smoke cigarettes and they come back and they're like, man, this tastes like shit. How did I not notice that? You know, it's like, well, you weren't paying attention. Yeah, you described meditation as a practice. And you said mindfulness is the result of that practice. And I think you said that mindfulness is really actively noticing new things. But like, I don't meditate, but I do actively notice new things. So am I getting to a state of mindfulness without meditating? I mean, do you have to meditate to be mindful? I think of meditation as a small circle within a larger Venn diagram of mindfulness. And we can actually even place to the side the word mindfulness because it's a concept which encompasses like awareness and curiosity. And we can just say, what if we just focus on curiosity as the attitudinal component of, of awareness? You know, like bringing in this attitudinal component. If we're curious about something, we're probably gonna pay attention to it. So meditation can help train us to be aware and curious, especially if, if that's the training, yet we don't have to meditate to do it. And in fact, in our clinical studies, we compared like informal practices to formal meditation practices. This is with our first smoking study. And we found that the informal practices moderated the outcomes more than the formal practices and then shifted how we even developed our, our app-based trainings. We're like, oh, let's do the informal stuff, help people incorporate this into their daily lives. And then we can layer in meditation on top of that if they want, if it will help provide a foundation. So I think of it as as helpful, but not necessary or sufficient, you know, meditation itself. And why is it so hard for people to pay attention? Well, there are a million, a million uh, reasons for that. But the main one is that our brains are set up, you know, if you think of it from a survival standpoint, there are other ways to think about this as well. We, you know, it's that explore, exploit trade-off where, you know, the idea is if we, um, we need a food source, we explore until we find a good food source. And then we kind of exploit that we stay there until that runs out. And if we're stuck in explore or exploit mode, neither we're going to, we're not going to survive because we're never going to stay at a food source and, and, and get it all. Or if we stay at a food source and, and we stay there when it's gone, that's also not helpful for survival. So our brains are set up to notice, um, you know, notice different things. There, our vision is set up to look for biological movements as a way to spot, you know, danger, et cetera. So there are a lot of these mechanisms that are set up for, we could think of it as set up for distraction, but our ancestor, for our ancestors, there was no distraction. <laughs> but the, the idea here is that we can, those mechanisms can be exploited in modern day to get people to be distracted. And that, you know, to think of this as the attention economy. So long story short, when we know these mechanisms and how they work, they can be exploited uh, to, to distract us all the time. And that distraction, because it's, it's a strong survival mechanism, is really challenging to overcome, especially as people keep designing and designing, designing more and more and more for distraction. Yeah, when you were first uh, telling your story about uh, what, what you experienced in medical school and finding meditation on the cassettes, uh, my immediate thought was, I wonder if you were uh, going through your program today, there are no cassettes. Would you just have flipped to your phone or opened your laptop, um, having all these distractions, you know, how the experience is different for the current generation? 
uh, it's, I, I would assume it's actually more difficult to find their path. I would guess so. Yeah. And so on one hand, there are more resources available than, say, cassette tapes or, you know, going to Southeast Asia and, you know, going on an immersive meditation retreat, for example. And on the other hand, you know, somebody's got this, you know, if, if their habit is to go to their phone for everything and they go to their phone to try to learn to be, to meditate, for example, there are going to be all these other things that, that their brain is, is finding as competition where they're like, oh, but I'm, let me just check my newsfeed or my social media or whatever. You know, none of that existed uh, back, back in the day, back in the old days. I would hope that any physician remembers what they, what oath they took in medical school, hint, Hippocratic oath for those that might not remember what that was. And so I, I, I take that very seriously, you know, first, you know, harm. And so if we're, you know, for me, uh, and, and I'm sure I'm blind to many things, but for me, it's really important to remember what is most important to me, which is to help my patients live better lives. And if I keep that as the North Star, then that compels me to even if, you know, I could develop a treatment and be like, oh, that's the world's greatest treatment for me or, you know, and who cares if it's if it doesn't help other people. And so I actually find two things really helpful. One is to remember what my intention is, which is, you know, like to help people. And in fact, it's pretty rewarding, as you both know. Uh, it's pretty rewarding to have meaningful relationships and to try to help. You know, we're not going to be able to cure everyone, but we can certainly help the healing process with anybody, no matter what that healing process looks like. And if our intention is pure around like, this is my goal and I'm going to do whatever I can to do that, that helps us stay uh, honest, both intellectually, but also egotistically. You know, the other thing, my, my, Mindfulness practice really helped me see how painful it is to be an, you know, be, be an egotistical ass or whatever. You know, it's like, ugh. you know, that just doesn't it's not very rewarding to try to promote myself. Um, it's exhausting. I'm, it, I'm sure people don't look that happy when they're out promoting themselves. And it seems like, you know, what benefit comes from being a charlatan? Like eventually you're going to be found out and somebody's going to outcompete you. So here I turn to Darwin and remember, you know, like survival of the fittest, you know, if a treatment's really good, it's going to keep being used. And if it's not that good, it's going to be outcompeted. So I bring in curiosity and be like, okay, well, how do we make something that's good? How do we test to see if it's any good? And how do we keep testing it to make it even better? And, and it's really fun and challenging and hard work and sometimes frustrating, but this is, it's like, okay, well, we can get good results. How can we, how can we make this even better? Now that's fun. And it is also directly aligned with like, how do we help our patients? So, you know, it's pretty, it's kind of like brain candy. I think of celebrity doctor or whatever. It's like brain candy, you know, that's going to fizzle out, but ultimately this, this comes down to our own direct experience. So, you know, it's about don't believe the hype of some celebrity person you know, try something out, look at the evidence and see if it's true. Well, I think the look at the evidence and see if it's true is really hard for most people to do. And on that note, I will just say, Judd, Dr. Brewer, um, <laughs> it has been a pleasure having you on the show. I think I think what you embody is is the 
kind of the perfect combination of intellectual curiosity and intellectual humility that that I think we need more of in in science and in and and clinicians and people that are out in the world giving TED talks and doing podcasts is is, is that degree of like there's there's as much that I don't know as I do know and and being willing to acknowledge this huge blind spot that we all have just knowing that we we have one is the first step to being a being I think a good scientist so thank you so much Justin great to have you as always and we're gonna have to do a part two sorry this wasn't enough happy to yeah that would be fun yeah thanks thanks a lot thank you for listening to inside medicine a private medical production we hope we've inspired you to think differently about your health and the healthcare system Please subscribe to our podcast and our medical dispatch, which you can find on our website, privatemedical.org. You can find the link in the show notes.